How was your week in Seattle, Mr. Zobin? Well, thank you for asking. Uh, if you get a Doppler effect, it's because Giovanni, my black cat, is uh, banging the microphone with his head. Wait, you have a cat called Giovanni? I have Giovanni and Snow White. Snow White is white. Giovanni is black. Well, he's tuxedo. They're rescues. So we didn't name them, but uh, the names work pretty well. He's uh, he's a cat that's like a dog, you know, super affectionate. And I was in Seattle for a week, so it was a great week. But uh, but uh, sad for the kitties. So my friend Fred comes over and feeds them, and he, and they love him too. But my cat has a Twitter account that I don't control. Really? Yes. Who controls that? I do know now, but I'm not going to say for anybody that follows Malarkey's cat on Twitter, because he just tweets the most hysterical things. It took me about six months to realize exactly who it was, because it was just so dry, kind of inside humor. It was so funny. So Seattle was good. Well, I have bronchitis, you might be able to hear, and I... I'm, I just found out it's not pneumonia, so that's good. But so, so physically, I was kind of, a, you know, not at my best, but I didn't really let it show, except for uh, on the third day, I was introducing Josh Clark, and I just, I was just making a simple good morning announcement, and I started coughing, and I couldn't stop. It was kind of sad. But uh, the show, I thought, was really great. Uh, I always learn so much from these event apart shows myself. I, uh, and, and we ended with, uh, a talk on how to basically how to remember and use what you've just learned and how to, how to share it with people at work so you can actually do it. Cause one of the things that we'd heard at an event apart was, uh, this stuff is great, but you know, you folks are talking about the future of web design and at my job they're still asking not even about responsive but do we really need to think about mobile so people were, wanted to know have been asking us for a long time like how do i bring this home how do i take this for the people who weren't able to come here how do i share it with them in a way that lets us uh work together well right and uh and uh thankfully uh we had a, a speaker um talk about that it was pretty amazing who was that that was scott birkin we just said to scott we said to scott asked toby and me toby molina and me what what would you like me to talk about this year what's important and uh we said he said i'm up for a challenge and we said okay because scott is the author of uh the year without pants right a book mm -hmm. about working at automatic in the future of corporate work, you know, as remote work, um, and five other books, Mindfire. He's a really amazing author. And he started as a designer at Microsoft in like 1994 and realized that designers didn't actually have the power. So if he really wanted to be in control of design, he should become the person with power, which at that company at that time meant stopping being a designer and becoming something else. So, uh, he has a very interesting perspective on design and client relations and, you know, uh, persuasion is really what he's great at. And, uh, and we asked him to talk about that. And so that's how the this, this show ended. The show ended with Mike Montero basically ripping our hearts out, uh, f forever working on stuff that we didn't believe in. 
And then, and, and then Scott Birkin saying, okay, uh, so if we want to really have wonderful design careers and we really want to be mindful of what we do and have control over what we do, what can we do to have more control over what we do and what can we do to take the lessons we just learned and apply them at work? And we're, most of this year we're going to have Scott, we're very fortunate to have Scott closing a lot of our shows this year with that talk. Mm, it sounds great. And then he took everyone out for drinks. Well, not <laughs> About 10%, right? Because if you actually invite 500 people and they all come, you're in trouble. But uh, a lot of people, you know, people get on a plane or they're going back to their families or whatever. So about 10% come. And uh, it's pretty cool. I was terrified by that final spot when we did that talk in Atlanta. It was, you did a great job. Thank you're, you. You were you're a great final speaker because you do... You're a big picture, thoughtful speaker. Well, I did the same thing at Smashing Conf in Oxford a couple of weeks ago, and it seemed to be the right kind of talk for that slot. So, um, I'd like to, I'd like to do that again at some point. Well, I think you just pitched me. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Talking about things that we're looking forward to. We are only one week. I can't believe this. It seems like forever since I've been thinking about this, but we are one week away from the start of the new season of Mad Men. The final season. I've noticed that we've started calling them seasons in the UK as well. We never used to do that. We just used to call them series. I don't think, I think it's, I think it's, you know, Netflix and uh, Amazon streaming and iTunes streaming. I think it's changed the way, I guess it started with DVDs. Like, I can remember not having HBO and buying The Sopranos on DVD and kind of mainlining that whole season over a couple of nights and wanting more immediately because it's crack. You know, really great television is kind of a, it's kind of replacing film as the thing that makes you, that gives you that literary and cinematic pl and uh, drama pleasure. Well, we, you know, when we travel, when Sue and I get on planes now, we used to take a hard drive full of films. You know, right. Cause the stuff that, you know, the stuff that you get on the kind of in flight entertainment's never, you know, never exactly what you want. Certainly not. Especially on flights, long haul flights. You know, if we're going to Australia, something like that, we can burn through an entire TV season. And it's so much better to watch a TV season than it is to watch, you know, three or four films. Love that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, and now, uh, with the, uh, with the new uh, mini, right? With the new mini uh, iPad mini, you got this perfect size device that has like 164 gigs, and most of your stuff's in the cloud. The cloud doesn't do you any good on the plane, but that's where you can say, "All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna get this entire season of something and something like the Mad Mad Men." I, I think also shows like Mad Men and The Wire have just trained us to expect a lot more from television. And it's a lot of shows are delivering. So ah, no, I mean, there's some good stuff. I mean, if you hear a siren, that's me. That's, that's New York. Are they after you? No, but uh, if the listeners should know, it's not coming from you. Yeah. The only thing that makes a noise around here is sheep and Malaki's yeah, cat. We don't, we don't have that. My, uh, Snow White, uh, I don't know if she has a super high hypothalamus or just, She's used to when I'm home at, in the after, in the evening, I feed her. And when I'm here in the morning, I feed her. So basically, if I'm home, she expects to be fed and she uses cat language, like ripping my books or so if you hear a little like 
clawing in the background. Don't worry about it. Yeah. I mean, it's just so priceless, you know. It'll just be that Stanley Kubrick book being uh <laughs> No, not that one. We're both, I think, huge fans of the show. Huge fans. Oh, yeah. There I go again. I go again because we, in the UK, we used to call them programs. It's right. Like, did you see that program last night on BBC One? Oh, yes, Delilah. It was wonderful. You have words that we don't use. I'll watch the whole series. We have the same words, but we don't like you. you we say show, you say program. You, we say extra large, you say small and medium. It's just, uh, we, we could, we could easily get onto one of my pet subjects, but we won't. Is obesity one of your pet subjects? Obesity is sort of one of my current topics because I'm trying to lose weight and I've yeah. lost five pounds in two weeks. You mean stone? No, five pounds. You can't lose five stone. That's my half my body weight. And five pounds I've lost in two That's weeks. Great. Yeah. That's just great. by eating better and uh, doing some exercise. So that's, that's the only way that it stays off. Yep, that's what I'm going to do. I'm fed up with being fat. So I thought that what we would do... But you're you're uh, you're a good-looking guy, and I can see why you like Mad Men, too, because uh, you dress... Drag- I mean, when you, when you present to clients, do you wear the same... Do you dress up as well as you do when you're speaking? Uh, no. I only ever wear that suit on stage. And one of the reasons for trying to lose weight is that at Smashing Conf, it was just on the verge of popping. It was just, it was that I was, I was a little bit too big for it. So, um, I managed to get away with it for about the hour and a half that I had to wear it, but it was really a bit of a dangerous uh, game. I have this, uh, these hot pants that are like uh, Richard Simmons hot pants, but I can't put them on yet. That's painting a picture. I'm, I'm glad you enjoy that picture. Well, you didn't say you enjoyed it. What do you want to do today? I think, because Mad Men's getting me all excited again, and we both worked in advertising as well back in the day. That's right. So I thought that it would be a nice idea to talk about Mad Men, but use it as a vehicle, really, just to maybe touch on some topics that relate to, you know, what we're doing now, what we're doing today, business-wise. Sounds good. Um, Because, you know... There's an awful, we talk about web design a lot. You know, we talk about the technical stuff and we talk about the creative stuff and we've been talking, man, we've been talking about a lot of process stuff over the last, you know, few years. Man, I think these things go in cycles. But one of the things that I don't think we generally get to talk about is that kind of, it's the ideas thing. You know, it's, it's, it's the whole coming up with a concept. And I don't think we talk about that enough. So maybe we can touch on that a bit today as well. That sounds great. And I should warn the listeners, though, there's going to be some spoilers. There has to be some spoilers. We can't avoid that. Well, I haven't seen the, the final season of you. No, no, no. But there's spoilers for people that haven't caught up with where we are now. Oh. Because I know plenty of people I talk to, have you seen Mad Men? And they go, oh, no, I've been meaning to watch it, but, you know, I think I'm a little behind. It's like, yeah, only six seasons. Oh, boy. I know. So anybody that hasn't seen Mad Men up to this point will give a few things away. They should probably just stop listening. I, I think they should go away and watch all six seasons so far and then come back and listen to the show. Absolutely. Not that they'll ever remember by the time they get there. I suppose the, the, the first question really is, because, you know, when you worked in advertising, did anyone's foot get run over by a ride on Lomo? That didn't happen, but... Didn't do with me either. The sex stuff happened. And the drinking and I was in advertising in the 90s, and the drinking was the same as you see in the 60s on the show. I mean, 
when I when actually when I when I got sober, one of my one of my fears about getting sober was that I would never be able to work in advertising again because you just everybody drank. Truthfully, probably most people didn't drink as much as I did because I you know I just went to town. But there was I don't know how many alcoholics there were in the business, but there was a lot of alcoholic drinking. Whether people were alcoholics or not is up is really only they know. But there was a lot of like ridiculous, absurd consumption of alcohol. Uh and it was it was tolerated and even like how about how about at your place? Not so much because we were kind of more out of town. It was a much more kind of small company mentality. But I do remember when I would, before I got back into the creative game, before I went to work for the agency, that sounds like the CIA, but it wasn't anything like that. Yeah. I remember I was working at this company and what we did was we, uh, we supplied pre-press equipment to big repro houses, you know, pre-press houses, that kind of thing. Wow. There were people there. I remember a particular sales director that I had at one point who was from that old kind of newspaper game. And that was very, very, very similar. Yeah. He did deals in the pub. That's what he did. He is a bit like Roger, you know, a bit like the the, the account man thing we'll talk about later on probably. Yeah. But he did all his business in the pub out there getting people drunk. I mean, he was a big guy, a big kind of ruby faced guy. You know, he'd obviously put a lot away in his time. Those people, uh, the account people actually had an excuse for all their drinking. It was sort of went with keeping the client, but, uh, creative people really didn't. I mean, I just, it probably didn't help me. Uh, the funny thing was once I was sober, it was like actually much easier to work because I was clear headed. I wasn't uh, consumed with re- uh, regret and I, I could sit down across from my partner and not wonder what terrible thing I might have said to them the day before. Like, I used to come into work and someone would scowl at me and I'd go, did I do something or are they just having a bad day? I don't know. So, but yeah, all that drinking stuff uh, was definitely part of it in, in my time. And uh, all the weird backstabbing and everything that goes on in the show, definitely true. I had creative directors who would uh, deliberately give us bad strategies so that at one place so that uh, not it wasn't every place i also worked at good places but i worked at a place where people at my level were getting about $40,000 a year and the creative directors were getting $250,000 a year and the agency kept losing people and downsizing and they kept on firing like 10 people at my level instead of one creative director so the creative directors really were nervous about keeping their jobs and so Instead of just supervising us, they competed with us. And instead of competing fairly, because they were worried, you know, you always worry in in, uh, in any creative field, you always worry that the person who's younger than you has an edge that you don't. If they want it more, they're hungrier, or they just have fresher ideas, or they're more in tune with society, wh- whatever it is that you, you know, they're just younger, right? Uh but but they would give us like a bad strategy. Like they would say, yeah, here's a chance. Guys, got to work this weekend. Chance to be heroes. Got this this client, uh, this racist client. So I uh, want you to work on kind of the Spike Lee strategy for this racist client. <laughs> we'll go over and work on the Ku Klux Klan strategy. But, you know, they wouldn't even tell you that part, right? I'm obviously there wasn't a racist client and a Ku Klux Klan. So it was like the only thing I could think of, but it was like they give you something that they knew the client didn't like 
like basically wasting the client's time and putting your job at risk and putting the account at risk so that they could then come in and be the heroes with the thing they knew the client would buy. So there was some of that. So that, I guess, is worse than cutting off a foot in a way. I've been dipping back into some of those old episodes because I rewatched season six uh, over the last month or so. And then I've been dipping in and out of some of those kind of classic episodes. And there's a few that I really, really like. I really love the one where Don, do you remember the one where Don gets one over on Ted Choi when they're pitching for Honda and they're not allowed to spend more than a certain number of thousands of dollars on, you know, they, they can't produce final work. Um, and Don cons Ted into actually going and producing a whole ad. They rent a studio and they ride around it on the Honda motorcycle. Do you remember oh, that one? Yeah. I love that kind of, I, that's, you see, that's the kind of dirty tricks that I really like. In TV. Yeah. No, no, in, in, in general. In life? You like that in life? Oh, yeah. I mean, not personally, but I mean, I've worked for people that, that gloried in that kind of thing, particularly with competitors. You know, where you, where you try to get a competitor to go off on a tangent. I had a sales director once who took great pleasure in when, when he was in a, when he knew that he wasn't going to get a deal and he knew that he was behind in a negotiation with a competitor, he would take great pleasure in driving the price down so that they wouldn't make any money on the deal, but they'd still have to, to support the client. So that kind of stuff. I, this is game playing, I think. Did you ever read, um, from those wonderful people who brought you Pearl Harbor? No. So it's Jerry Delafamina's book. Uh, Jerry Delafamina was a huge ad guy in the sixties, seventies, and uh, kind of at the end of the eighties, he, he, I think he's still going. I think, and I just think he's still got an agency, but, uh, his original agency, Delafamina and Partners was, uh, really powerful and it was all based on you know from the street streetwise funny honest truthful stuff uh and weird sexist stuff that you couldn't even um, like like i remember um one of his most famous campaigns showed a naked woman and the headline was what's the ugliest part of your body this is from the, the mid 60s and uh and then it was, uh, you just said your feet, didn't you? That's typical. Most women think their feet are blah, 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 blah. That's why we made this product called Pretty Feet, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, I mean, it was very shocking and powerful at the time. He, his book is filled with wonderful stories like that of, uh, they had a guy that would destroy meetings. He just, when he opened his mouth, he would ruin whatever goodwill had built up. He would just make the client fire the agency immediately. I don't know why they kept him. They obviously had to for some reason. And he tells the story of how uh, they'd let him come to meeting this meeting with the Mexican tourist board on the <laughs> understanding that he had to keep his mouth shut. He wasn't allowed to talk. And they went through the whole meeting and the meeting was great. And the Mexican tourist board really liked the agency and the agency liked the tourist board and everybody's happy. They're leaving the meeting. It looks really good. And this guy puts his arm around the uh, the head of the tourist board and says, this is great. And Jose, if you're really good, we'll let you have Texas back. <laughs> Just horrible, you know. Uh, but his, his book is, you'll love it. Okay. From those wonderful people who brought you pro. I'm going to dig that out. I'm going to put a link in the show notes for that. That one, where the, from those wonderful people who brought you Pearl Harbor, it's the 60s, so it World War II isn't that far away in people's memories. Like people working on the campaign might have fought in the war. And uh, they had to do, like it was for Sony or something, but they had to introduce some 
Japanese product and they're brainstorming, nothing's coming, nothing's coming. And then so finally someone says, from those wonderful people who brought you Pearl Harbor. Well, so, there was uh, an episode, um, and I forget the name of it now, Chrysanthemum, I think was in the title, but there was an episode where I think it was Honda that they were dealing with and Roger was very offended by the fact that it wasn't yes. that long since the war and uh, right. they were having to, do, to, to, to work with the Japanese, which, which I thought was, that was a good episode. It really makes you aware of how much time has passed. Mm. And although it's actually not that long ago when you think about well, it, it's what is my it? Child. You know, 70 years. So it's, it's my childhood. It's, uh, my dad is probably Don Draper. I mean, his age, not his personality, although in some ways. Uh, and it's a really different world. I mean, that world where pregnant women smoked and they, I mean, the first year of Mad Men, they just delighted in shocking us. Like, the, remember the families at a picnic? Yes. It's this beautiful, idyllic scene. They're sitting there with their new pink Cadillac or something, and they're just, and then like Don throws his beer can into the woods and yes. they dump their garbage in the woods, like, because. The world is white America's ashtray in the 60s. I think that very, very first episode, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, I think it's probably up there with the best first episodes that I've ever seen. Because, that was tough. They, yeah. yeah, and I, I don't like watching shows where it takes hours and hours and hours to get into the actual story, to, to, to understand it. You mentioned The Wire. I, I've tried to watch The Wire three times and I get three episodes in and I have to give up. I can't watch it. Oh, you shouldn't give up. Oh, it's so good. What about Boardwalk Empire? Uh, no, not actually attempted that one yet. I'm really struggling at the moment with the first few episodes of True Detective as well, which everybody tells me is amazing and I should just persevere. The, the first episode, yeah, the, well, the first episode, Nice cinematography, good music, but you think, yeah, I've seen this before, but you really haven't seen this before. But they, they set it up like something you've seen before. Uh, it's like, oh, Silence of the Lambs, sequel number 5000. Mm, that's but what I was not. thinking. Yeah, but it's not that. It's I need to that. get on. I need to watch. I need to sit down. And in fact, that's going to be our next thing. Those act, the three actors, the three lead actors are amazing in it. You asked about the account guy. No, we'll talk about, we'll talk about Roger in a minute. But okay. can we talk, can we talk about that that first episode while it's still in my mind? All I remember is they were they took uh, it seemed like they just wanted to be shocking. I don't remember liking the first episode. I remember like, do we have any Jews in the place? Not a, have we hired any Jews? Not on my watch. I remember that line of dialogue, and they hire a Jewish guy from the mailroom to pretend to be a the, copywriter. Exactly, yeah, because they don't so, have a Jewish she, guy on the team. And she sees right through it, and yeah, that was that that was. That was, that was part of it. The big deal, the big deal with episode one was Don needs an idea for Lucky Strike because he hasn't got one. And they're coming in in the afternoon for a meeting and he doesn't have an idea at all. So he sits in the meeting. Remember this? He sits in the meeting with a client and he's sitting there. He's got his kind of like leather folder and it's got blank sheets of paper in it because he's got absolutely nothing. He hasn't got an idea at all. And Pete Campbell, the slimy account guy, He's actually picked some research, research uh, thing out of Don's trash can. And then in the meeting, when Don's got no idea, he stands up there and he tries to present this research based approach. It's like, oh, well, we know cigarettes are dangerous. So let's just play on that. You know, let's just play on, you know, you know, you've got to get, you're a man. You've got to get where you're going, kind of smoke your cigarette idea, which is a terrible idea for the campaign. It's like using death in the campaign. And then, 
just as the Lucky Strike guys are walking out the door, Don has this incredible kind of firework display of mental energy. And he just stands there and he comes up with that whole It's, it's toasted, toasted campaign. The Federal Trade Commission and Reader's Digest have done you a favor. They've let you know that any ad that brings up the concept of cigarettes and health together, well, it's just going to make people think of cancer. Yes, and we are grateful to them. But what Lee Jr. said is right. If you can't make those health claims, neither can your competitors. So we've got a lot of people not saying anything that sells cigarettes. Not exactly. This is the greatest advertising opportunity since the invention of cereal. We have six identical companies making six identical products. We can say anything we want. How do you make your cigarettes? I don't know. Shame on you. We breed insect repellent tobacco seeds, plant them in the North Carolina sunshine, grow it, cut it, cure it, toast it. Well, there you go. There you go. But everybody else's tobacco is toasted. No, everybody else's tobacco is poisonous. Lucky Strikes is toasted. And he comes up with this amazing thing right, right in front of their eyes, and then he sells the client the idea, and it's like this, it's like a joy to watch. Yeah, watching him sells is amazing. His campaigns often, I think, suck. His creative act is in that meeting, is, is the story that he tells and the picture that he paints. I want to talk about that, that exact thing in a minute. But the thing I was going to ask was, you know, he's, he's famous for these kind of flashes of creative genius. And right. his ideas, whether you like them or not, they, his ideas come from his imagination. You know, the, right. it's, it's all done. You know, there's, there's episode after episode where, you know, he's, he's struggling for an idea. He doesn't get the ideas from nowhere else. He doesn't get the idea from research. You know, he's in those early episodes, he's very against this whole kind of research based approach, right? So today, when we're thinking about our web stuff, everybody seems to be jumping on this whole designing with data bandwagon, right? Mm. Rather than have, rather than relying, I think they rely on data a lot because they don't have faith like Don does in a really strong idea. And, is, you, you saw me talk about this when um, when I did that talk in Atlanta, that modern designer's canvas talk, right? Right. Because, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I want to make something that comes from a great idea. I don't want to make something because 10 people tell me it's what they want. Well, no, I don't. That's not research. 10 people telling you what they want isn't research. Uh, see, I don't. I think both things are valid. Research tells you things that aren't working that you need to fix. Yeah, I mean, there's a big idea and then there's how come people aren't completing our shopping cart? And research might tell you, well, it's because they can't see the button. So I, I, I don't think the two things are opposed at all. I think they're, uh, I know where you're coming from because since I had a background in advertising, when I first heard about usability and when I first heard about testing and everything, I was against it because I equated it incorrectly with, uh, the kind of bullshit research that I'd seen in advertising, which doesn't mean all advertising research is bullshit. It just means at the agencies where I worked, I saw a lot of bogus research basically to prove to the client that the campaign was right, to prove to somebody that whatever 
be they had in their bonnet was the right way to go. It was, it was not research to learn. It was not research to find out. It was research to confirm. And that was bullshit. So, you know, we, before we presented something to the cable company, we would interview people in a way that got them to answer what we wanted them to answer. So, I mean, I, I wasn't responsible for this. I just watched it. And so, and, and then when the client said, well, are you sure? I would say, well, the research says it, or, well, that's what the testing proves. So, uh, famously, there's a guy, uh, is it Niedermeyer? Uh, a, a famous comedy commercial director. I'm blanking on his name now. It's not Niedermeyer, but it sounds kind of like that. Um, but he did a commercial about testing. And in the background, there was a little plaque that said, testing proves, testing works. And I always thought that was hysterical. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, so, so as it, as a person who worked in advertising, I have a huge chip on my shoulder about that stuff, as I think you do. But to me, that's different from testing prototypes for interaction design, which I think is completely valid or looking at which pages, looking at the data, like which sections of the site are people using? Which sections are they ignoring? What I think is that, and I talked about this in that, in that talk in Atlanta, is that people seem to want to be, they're so risk averse. They, they want things to be so predictable that I see, I see, I think I see a lot of people who rely on gathering data rather than, you know, relying on their own intuition. And I, I don't want to see designs that are, you know, predictable. I want to see designs that have got some spark of inspiration about them. I mean, I, I agree with you, uh, that, and I've also done a thing where I, I, I've done projects where my heart knows something's right and I just want to go for it. I don't always win those things. And that's sad. Sometimes data is just, again, just useful to, to back up your intuition to someone who doesn't trust just your intuition. Someone who's going to go, yeah, okay, you've won these awards and you're great, but, uh, you know, we're risking all this money here and, we're risking our jobs here and we want something else. So it can be legitimately be used for validation. And of course, the kind of research that I like is the kind where you actually learn what people need or you use it to get an idea of what people need. Not, you never want people to tell you what they want because, you know, like the famously people would have said they wanted a, a black, a blackberry with bigger keys or a faster horse, right? A faster horse. Right. I'm totally, I'm with you on that. I wonder whether it's because we come from that background. We might think differently from maybe, you know, maybe some younger people who have come at the web from a different place, you know, because the web's an interesting space because we get so many different and complementary, mostly, specialties. And people come at it, there's, there's so much involved in what we call in the commas web design now mm-hmm. that my view of it, into all my view of the part of the creative process is out of step. I don't know. No, I, I think, uh, cause I'm about the idea. I'm still about the idea. I'm still about the thing that Don says in one of the other episodes when he's talking to Peggy, when he's mentoring Peggy and he says, they hate us because they don't understand us and they don't understand us because we can do something they can't do. I remember, I mean, this is like my first couple of weeks at this uh, small ad agency in, <laughs> in South London, you know, when I first got back to it and we did a lot of below the line stuff. I mean, it was, it was, you know, it wasn't poor quality work, but it was, it, you know, it wasn't exactly going to ever 
the award-winning stuff. And we did a lot of work with local car dealers. That was, you know, the, the bread and butter of this particular business. And we do crazy stuff. You know, we there'd be an offer and, you know, and the, the strap line would be monster savings. And, you know, there'd be a picture of Godzilla in the, in the ad for God's sake, you know, but <laughs> it was the idea. It was that stuff that got me interested. It's that stuff that I really liked, you know, the cleverness of, of, of the wordplay and the visual play and that kind of thing. That's what I still love. Did you do it as a kid? I apparently wrote jingles as a kid. My parents had a friend who was in advertising. He'd worked on the, uh, I don't know if you got it in England. It was a Ray-Bans, uh, Ray Ban, uh, Foster Grant, sorry. This was a campaign from the 60s, and you'd see like Marcello Mastrioni wearing sunglasses, and it would say, isn't that Mas- Marcello Mastrioni behind those Foster Grants? Believe it or not, that was very successful. <laughs> because, I guess, because people like celebrities. But anyway, this guy said to my parents, what's it like to have an ad, a future ad man in the family? Wow. I guess because I was like, uh, making up jingles about, you know, my mom was making bacon and I was making up a jingle about bacon. I have a photographic memory for, for jingles and ads. I mean, I, I, I can remember ads from childhood, you know? Yeah, me too. Um, I've always liked ads. Well, they were, those were much more memorable. They, They were horrible. But they were like, they'd get stuck in your head, like, when the prices go down, 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 and the values go up, 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 whatever. Yeah, there's a hazelnut in every bite in a topic. How can I remember that? Every bite. Yeah, there's a hazelnut in every bite. And there was like a chipmunk standing on top of the topic bar, the chocolate bar. See, in America, we had, uh, you get a big delight in every bite. And uh, even space, space girls know, what was it? Oh, my God. <sighs> Do you know what, what, one of the things I like about Don? Don Draper. Don Draper, right? If you're just joining us, listeners, he's talking about <laughs> Don Draper, the fictional. Again. But there was an episode where, I think it was season four, where the agency SCDP, they lost Lucky Strike as a client. And Don uh, sits there one night and he writes this letter. He writes this ad that he puts into the New York Times. Right. Which is why I'm quitting tobacco. Right. I'm not going to do it. And he even says, like, I still smoke. But yeah. I won't do any more tobacco advertising. I, I loved that. And the fact that he didn't ask his partner. No. And the thing was, he is just that- did it. He just, well, that guy's, a, he just does whatever he wants. Somebody used your name to end our business in the newspaper. It's not you, is it? It's suicide. It's insane. How the hell could you do this? Why would you do this? Because someone had to do something. You put the company name on it. You should have consulted us. Why? To evaluate its strengths and weaknesses, to knock it down to risk versus reward, it's done. And I slept last night for the first time in a month. You slept, really? You weren't smiling, thinking about the taste of shit that would be in everybody's mouth over breakfast today? No one asked you to euthanize this company. What did you expect? For us to pat you on the back? Don't you realize the clients are all going to think you could turn on them at any minute? I'm not going to explain to you what I did. It's an ad for this agency. If you don't understand it, then you shouldn't be in this business. And I'm thinking, that's genius, right? That's genius. And he says, I'm not going to explain to you what I did. It's an ad for this agency. If you don't understand it, then you shouldn't be in this business. Wow. I'm thinking, you know, that's the kind of strength of conviction and strength of ideas and confidence in yourself. I love that stuff. And some people think, oh, man, how arrogant is that? You know, how how, how completely kind of narcissistic or self-important must you be, right? I love that kind of thing. You know... You have to earn it. And if you've earned it, then it's not narcissistic. It's just that's what you're good at. That's your job. You you do know better, 
right? If Miyazaki wanted to say something, criticize a, a, some animation that I worked on, I would listen because who better than Miyazaki to tell me? Mm. Uh, I think that's true. I, I had a creative director uh, named Sal DeVito. I had I worked for several really, really talented, uh, brilliant creative directors, but this guy, he wouldn't even talk. He would just look at your stuff. And you'd just read his face. You'd stand there quivering with, uh, with fear and anticipation. You'd, you'd work all day. You and a partner, like, they didn't even have office space because they were so creative. They, uh, they were broke. And so we would just go out and it was in Soho, uh, downtown New York. And we would just go work in the park all day with a sketch pad and then come back and show him everything. And he would just like, turn things over and without smiling, just like he, he'd seen everything. And every once in a while, he might stop and let his thumb rest on an ad for a minute. And you go, oh, my God, he's considering this one. <laughs> and once in a while, he might, his eyebrows might move up slightly or he'd have a very faint ghost of a smile. And, man, you that was like the greatest thing that could ever happen to you if you got a ghost of a smile from Sal. He might even, he might even say something. Um. And, and by the way, his not saying anything was still, that meant that you weren't gro- grossly disappointing him. Cause if you were grossly disappointing him, you'd be out. Mm, yeah. So you had to do out. excellent work for him to be bored by it. You had to do really good work beyond competent for him to go, for him to sit there kind of scowling at it or being like, uh, the, the, uh, chief of detectives in, uh, Brooklyn nine, nine you know, inscrutable. Is there a place for that in the web now? I don't know. I mean, I, I ask myself that because, uh, I mean, that's sort of my role in, in my studio. And, uh, yeah, there is, and there isn't, uh, there, I, I think we always have a strong at happy car. We always have a strong creative director on everything. So yeah, I think there is. I think there is, but I don't, I'm not down with the, uh, there's a sort of what I think what you dislike is, uh, when we were talking about research, I think it's more of a old fashioned pseudo scientific pseudo research based waterfall method where there's like 16 steps to every project and there's three versions of this and the, you know, there's like seven rounds of this with the wireframe and each element of the wireframe gets a number. Um, there are agencies, big agencies that specialize that way because it's, it's a way of managing that the level of work that they have to do. If you're doing a million dollar redesign for a huge museum or a huge company of some kind and it's every division of that company, you have to sort of treat it like, Engineers treat project management yeah, right? I, as if, as if you're doing a big military installation and you know, you've got to get, make sure that there's boots for all the soldiers and there's uh, artillery for all the soldiers. And so I don't work on those kinds of projects. And I don't. We don't. And, and I think that's more what we dislike. And I think we're always looking for the jobs where your intuition plays a huge part in it. I mean, the first. I always talk about this, but the first project that some partners and I got was Batman Forever. And one of the ways that we got it was uh, letting the client know that we understood the character and understood the brand. The other people pitching, we were in the same room, and they were saying, 
Batman swings out on a rope and says, hi, I'm Batman. Welcome to the Batrove or whatever their idea was. And I just blurted out, Batman doesn't talk. I had to say that. Like, it was blasphemy to me that Batman would be a pitch man for his own website. That was mm. just, he would never do that. There are some characters who could do that. SpongeBob could do that, but not Batman. And I think I blurted it out and I covered my mouth because I wasn't supposed to speak out of turn while someone else was pitching. It was very rude. But the client looked at me with this smile. It looked like right into my eyes. And I was like, oh my God, we've got this. <laughs> uh, not to diminish the work that the other people my my partners, uh, Alec Pollock and Steve McCarran, really did the heavy lifting on that website. They were really responsible for it being good. But getting it, I feel like my blurting that out helped us get it. Well, let's talk so, about selling in a second, if we if we can. I just want sure. to do a quick sponsor. Um, let me tell you about an event that I'm very, very disappointed that I can't go to because um, it's Alex's graduation that week. Otherwise, I'd be there. And I think you should go. It's the event is called the Business of Web Design Conference, and it's happening in Cardiff on the 18th of July, 2014, this year. And this isn't a conference about making websites. It's not about design or development. Well, not directly. It's about the business end of web and creative industries. And if that sounds familiar, that's that's what this show is supposed to be about when we're not talking about apes and madmen and soap in hotel rooms. The Business of Web Design is organized by Joel Hughes, and he's invited some wonderful people to speak. So it kicks off with uh, Sean Johnson, who he's got his own podcast, uh, Freelance Web. He's talking about how we price up projects. Then there's Kirsty Burgoyne, Viviana Doktorovich from Clear Left. That's a great name. That's like a Russian Bond villain's name, that, isn't it? Mm. Viviana Doktorovich. Mm. Then there's Quick on the Draw, Stu Robson. Dan Edwards, who was last year's Designer of the Year, Young Designer of the Year at the Net Awards. Steve Kirkley, Danny Bluestone, and it finishes up with one, the one and only, my friend Paul Boag, who I'm competing with to lose 14 pounds over the next two months. And he's talking about educating clients to say yes. He loves that kind of client relationship stuff. And that's mm. a really fabulous lineup. It's a fresh lineup, some very different talks. And, you know, I wish I could go. The Business of Web Design Conference is where you'll get help and advice from on the front line of running a web design business. And you should definitely go. It's on the 18th of July. Tickets cost just... 129 pounds and if you get there quickly you might be able to pick up one of the early bird tickets for just 99 quid so go to unfinished.bz slash business to get yours and if you use the offer code unfinished you'll get 10 percent off at the checkouts there we go business of web design conference that sounds really great ah it's a really nice little take on uh on uh on the topic because not, not enough of that stuff normally gets talked about where is that Cardiff, where we met last time. Cardiff, UK. Cardiff, UK. Is it at that same place? Uh, no, it's a smaller venue. Man, that thing was insane. That was like the biggest venue in Europe, that place. Yeah, that seemed like they'd made that place to have uh, a conference at the end of the world. Mm. Oh, they, they, they host operas and ballet and Lord knows what else at that place. It definitely stands up to that. That was serious architecture. You really wouldn't want to have like a clown college conference there. It would just be, it would just be indecorous. You'd be like, because the place, I mean, it's got massive, uh, Welsh writing, mm. like six stories tall with light pouring out of it. It's, it's like something out of 2001, a space odyssey. And you, you know, it's really brilliant architecture. It's so imposing and amazing. And, uh, 
or or like borscht belt comics wouldn't work. Mm-mm. So I plugged in my electric shaver, the trolley stop. That's right, friends. This town was so small, the mice were built stoop-shouldered. That's the episode title this week. So I watched, I watched season six again over the last sort of month or so, and brutal. The la- it was, and a lot of people didn't like it. And I, I know that people that have been watching Mad Men since the beginning, they've had real difficulty over like season five and six because there's been a lot more kind of Don Draper introspection uh, than there may, might have been in some of the previous ones. This is what got me. The last episode of that last series, Don's in a meeting with Hershey's, right? And he tells them two Dear stories. God. He finally tells the truth about his life. Yes. And he's, he, he tells, finally tells the truth about his life. And it's the best story he's ever told. And he's discharged. Yeah. And basically, so what happens is for listeners that might not have seen it tough, Hershey's have never advertised and they're thinking about maybe taking on an agency. So he tells them this wonderful story about how when he was a boy, he would mow the lawn to, you know, one of his chores. And when he'd finished, his dad would kind of ruffle his hair and give him a Hershey bar. And it was this beautiful kind of all American, you know, father and son story. And it was completely made up. So just at the point where, you know, he, the other partners think that they might be getting somewhere with Hershey's, he actually tells the truth, which is, you know, how he grew up in a whorehouse. I'm sorry. I have to say this. I don't know if I'll ever see you again. What? I was an orphan. I grew up in Pennsylvania in a whorehouse. I read about Milton Hershey and his school in Coronet Magazine or some other crap the girls left by the toilet. And I read that some orphans had a different life there. I could picture it. I dreamt of it. Of being wanted. Because the woman who was forced to raise me would look at me every day like she'd hoped I would disappear. Closest I got to feeling wanted was from a girl who made me go through her John's pockets while they screwed. If I collected more than a dollar, she'd buy me a Hershey bar. And I would eat it alone in my room the great ceremony feeling like a normal kid it said sweet on the package sweet thing in my life. Do you want to advertise that? If I had my way, you would never advertise. You shouldn't have someone like me telling that boy what a Hershey bar is. He already knows.
I think they recognize that it's that this is the truth. Mm. It's not the comforting lie. They might even have suspected that what he was saying was bullshit before, but they wanted everyone. We live in a world where we want to believe, you know, we live in a world where someone's sick and you know, they're not going to get better. And everyone says, well, you seem better or I hope you get better. And you say, thank you, even though you're not getting better because you want, you want people to, you, everyone wants the other person to feel okay or they want to not really engage because parts of life can be, you know, brutally horrifying. And, uh, that's what that episode is about to me. And like he actually, right in the heart of corporate America, he told the truth and, uh, that was the one thing that was not allowed. All the things he's gotten away with. I know. Think about all the things he's gotten away with. Some crazy things in that season, too. I think it's, you mentioned this earlier on, it's his ability to tell a story and then sell an idea to a client. I mean, we saw it in that first episode with Lucky Strike, where, you know, he has this idea, maybe not even be the strongest idea in the world. It's, you know, it's not a tested idea. It's something that's literally of the moment. And he manages to sell that to the client in that meeting. And then he does the same thing with different results with Hershey's in that last episode. And I was just thinking to myself, because we do this all the time. I mean, we've got Sue, the designer that works with me now a lot of the time. And, you know, she's brilliant. She comes up with a lot of really great stuff. But one of the things that I say quite a lot is I can't sell that yet. You know, it's a good idea. There's a great idea in there somewhere, but I can't sell it yet because I don't understand the story. I can't tell the narrative to the client. Yes. And I, I know that I'm good at that is one of the things i'm not being arrogant but you know it's one of the things that i've done for a long time that kind of client presenting thing but i wonder you know how important is it for designers now to be able to do that to tell that kind of story to sell that idea to a client i think it's always going to be important because people have trouble with it yes there are some really talented designers who have stalled careers and can't sell their best work because they're not good storytellers. And there are some just average designers who are brilliant storytellers who will be more successful. And it's not fair. And it sucks. And if you're the brilliant designer who's uh, not doing as well as the mid middle middling designer, just, you know, you just want to hate them and you want them to fall down an elevator shaft. But the other way to look at it is they're doing something well that you need to learn to do. And then you'll have it then you'll be in great shape because you not only have your talent, your visual talent, but you'll also, and you're, you'll have, and besides storytelling's part of design. That's really what design is. The design should be telling a story. Mm. If you can't figure that out, maybe it's because you just, you know, you applied a grid and you applied a color palette and you uh, applied your knowledge of type, but you didn't actually, your design is competent in a sense, but it's not really, living it's not really breathing it's not really telling a story i th i think they go together mm, i remember there's a quote from conrad hilton do you remember this it was at, it was like see, mid i think it was at the end of season three and i, I just love this quote because he's really telling don off in this meeting and he says oh where he says are you one of those people yeah he says i got everything i have on my own it's made me immune to those who complain and cry because they can't i didn't take you for one of those don are you I, I remember that because, you know, you do get people in our industry, you know, I suppose it's, it's the same. What is he doing now? Why is he doing this? Why can't I do that? I'm just as good as that. You know, this kind of, I don't know whatever you want to put it down to, kind of entitlement or jealousy or something. And it's like, I, and, I, and I can't be doing with people like that. You know, it's, it's like you get off your ass and you do something. 
you never felt that way when you were when you were getting started? No, well, I remember. I think I talked. You never about felt this competitive with anyone? Oh no, I'm all super competitive. I'm still super competitive. I think that's just what you're describing. It's just competitiveness, but but it's but it's not focused. They haven't. Uh, if, if you're just feeling sorry for yourself because someone else is doing better than you, then that's kind of useless. That's, that's what not I'm helping you. About it. Yeah, that's yeah. really what I'm talking about. Yeah, but if but if you use that energy, like, why are they getting the jobs I'm not getting? What are they doing right? What can I learn from them? How can I be better than them? I think that it uplifts the whole human race. No, I think that that wanting to be better is 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 a yeah. incredibly valuable. It's it's funny. Um, actually, Laura Laura Calbag, who comes on the show quite a lot, mm, love her. She's been writing for you on a list apart recently, mm-hmm. and she did this. Um, I really enjoyed it this week. Actually, she wrote this article about me and my big fat ego, which is perfect timing. Absolutely perfect timing, because obviously Don has got an enormous ego. Um, and I don't think that's ever a bad thing. You know, those are obviously good good and bad and everything, but actually having a big ego, I don't think, uh, having a big personality, I think might be a better way of putting it, I don't think is a, is a, is a bad thing. Those, that day is fading, though, the day of the Jerry Delafaminas. I, I, uh, I've done some projects with Roger Black, who's a big big art director like he's a, a classic art director from the 80s he did uh magazine covers for everybody he designed every magazine print magazine that you can think of just about time and newsweek and and uh, all these newspapers and he's designed many many news websites and works on typefaces uh with burlow at the type foundry and just you know brilliant guy but he's got a larger than life personality it's like uh He's like a giant leprechaun or I don't know what he, I mean, he's a guy from Texas, so that's part of it, but he just, and he's also a, a struggling, you know, self-made man, but he's like, and you, the guy always dresses immaculately. He's got a lot of style and you don't see much like that anymore. I really love the guy. And I also think this is a connection to what I came up with. The people who taught me as I was, you know, when I was a young Copywriter and art director. This and, is exactly, uh, exactly. That's what going I away, think. though. That's going away. I read so many articles about, and I'm paraphrasing, right? But I read so many articles about how designers need to have. Man, if I read another article about how designers need to have empathy, I'm going to punch myself in the face or something. Jesus, there's so many articles about how you've got as a designer, you have to sort of subjugate your own wishes to the needs of your users, that kind of thing. You have to have empathy for God's sake, right? Instead of having the strength of character to sell a bloody idea. It's like, can't we have both? Well, and doesn't it depend on the project? 37 signals scratch their own itch, right? They designed what they wanted to use. They totally relied on their own intuition. Now they listen to their users because now they have products out there like Basecamp. They're, they've, they're removing all their other products, right? They're just going to be selling only Basecamp. So, so they're focusing on this one product that's huge. That's been immensely helpful to millions of people. And now, uh, if a user has a problem, they want to hear about it. But, but when they initially started, they, they just sort of, I don't know, to me, the ego thing, it's, it's the same reason you start your own studio because you don't like the way your boss is running the place where you work. Or you think you could do better. It's part of that to me. And it's not for everybody. A lot of people really want to work for someone else and that's cool. And thank God they do. But, but there's a certain kind of person, maybe with a big ego, 
or maybe with a damaged ego, or maybe just with a better idea. I don't know. Maybe all three, right? Because mm. uh, if you don't have the ego, you're not going to fulfill your idea. You'll just be a miserable malcontent. If you have a better way of running a project or a better way of running a studio, and you don't go out there on your own, you're going to be the worst employee in the world. I don't, I don't, I want to work with people who eventually want to work for themselves and I want to work with people who don't want to work for themselves. But the person who doesn't believe in themselves enough to go out there and works for me great grudgingly, I don't want to work with that person. That's, that's going to be a bad employee. You have to have empathy toward yourself too. Yeah. And find the situation that fits you. Just come in with joy. Does that make any sense? No, it makes it makes perfect sense. I just remember, you know, the people that I've worked with over the years have all been big personalities, right from the very first job that I yeah. had. Um, and this wasn't always in the creative game. It wasn't always in client services. It was often in sales. And I would work with brilliant salesmen and brilliant sales directors who would be able to motivate you in such a way that you could just go off. I remember I was working for a guy I've mentioned before on the show, Joe Simons. He was a, a sales director, managing director of a company that I worked at. And I'd been having a really hard time. I mean, I was, I, I was pretty demoralized and, you know, things weren't going so well with the, with the products that we were doing. I remember being up north with him up in the north of England and him driving me back down to London. And by the time we got down to London, I could have taken on the world. I was like so filled with confidence and so inspired that I just wanted to get out there the following day and like, you know, bloody well sort things out. Um, and that's the kind of, that's personality. That's what I love. Yeah. I sure hope that never goes away. I do fear that it's going away. We should do another sponsor. You know, these guys, this is uh, Drew and Drew McClellan and Rachel Andrew. Oh, I love them. And they make this fabulous product called Perch which is a fast and simple content management system, which is built for hardworking web designers, people who care about their front-end code. And it's also the CMS that we recommend to all of our clients at Stuff and Nonsense. We recommend it over and over again, and they really like it too. So you probably don't know this, but back in the day, Drew and Rachel, they were part of the original team alongside you, Jeffrey, at the Web Standards Project. They were. And they worked with Macromedia to make Dreamweaver more standards compliant. Boy, we all owe them for that. Really do. And then Rachel, she's also the author of SitePoint's best-selling CSS anthology book too. And Drew's the publisher of 24 Ways. Oh, I love that site. I love it and hate it. I wish it was all year. I Yeah, I hate it because I don't do it. That's one of those things that uh, I wish that was mine, right? I just so talk about envy, like... Why does he get to do that? Because he had the idea. And he, <laughs> and he reached out to all those people and he got them to write that. So, oh, yeah, I guess that's the reason. And it's not just having the idea. It's actually implementing it and going away and doing it, which is the, the hardest part of the battle, I think. They're not just CMS geeks. They're web standards geeks, too. And they really do understand meaningful HTML and organized CSS and efficient JavaScript. They understand that those things matter. And they've used all of that knowledge and their experience to make Perch. So Perch puts you, a web designer or developer, in control of everything that's output to the browser. So all HTML is template-based. And the default templates, the ones that get you started, they don't throw in lots of terrible HTML that you can't control or you have to battle with. Perch is built for HTML5. So I imagine most people are designing and developing responsive sites using that. At least you should be. I'm going to get emails about that again. Yeah. 
Perch has lots and lots of tools to help you with that. For example, it already supports the new responsive images picture element. I didn't know about that. There's a special 10% discount for unfinished business That's listeners. That's amazing. That's brilliant, yeah. Unfinished business listeners get 10% discount, but you'll need to be quick because it's only running until this coming Friday, which is the 11th of April. To find out more about Perch and to claim your discount, go to unfinished.bz slash perch, and then they're going to let you know, they're going to know that we sent you. We touched on this briefly earlier on, but we've got account men like Roger Sterling and Pete Campbell, and it was their job to keep the client happy, right? Do those people still have a place? Do you do you have account people at Happy Cog? Are you are you an account man? We don't have account people. We have project managers, and I am not that. When I was running projects, I was a creative director, and I I was uh, in the New York office. We didn't have project managers, and that was bad. We have great project managers now. I sort of tried to be that. I tried to be a creative director and a project manager, and that's separate from an account person. Account person is really advertising. But uh, project managers are, I guess, our equivalent. But the problem is that, well, they have less power institutionally as a rule than an account person. An account person at an ad agency, depending on the nature of the agency, they, they may have the client in their pocket. It may be their they may have all the power. I remember um, I was working at a New York agency, and we had the traveler's insurance as a client. I shouldn't say that. Oh, well, I said it. The traveler's insurance was our client, and we were doing this commercial, terrible commercial with umbrellas because you're under the traveler's umbrella. And uh, at the time, uh, this was 20 years ago, so I'm sure it's it's a different company now. All the people who worked on this are long gone. I'm sure, and they've been bought or merged or something, and they're at a different agency. So none of this matters anymore, except as a story. But the account supervisor was directing us to make changes that would make the commercial appealing to three people in the world who were on the they were uh, on the board, three members of the board. That's who the commercial was for. <laughs> it wasn't for the public. It was for three members of the board that they might see it on, you know while traveling, or I'd see it in their hotel room or something. And uh, my creative director said, when are we going to care about what the consumer thinks? I don't really care what John and Mary think. When are we going to When are we going to care? start caring about what the consumer thinks? And the account executive said, never on this account. Wow. So there you go. So we were spending millions of dollars of the client's money. Well, not millions. Well, in media buys, millions. In production, not much. But uh, to make a commercial... It was almost like the Truman Show, right? Yeah. The whole, right? It was uh, this whole world just being created, not for the benefit of Truman, but for the benefit of three people, three people with some with money. And if the commercial ran and not on, a, on a, at a football game, and ninety million people watching that football game had no idea what they just saw or what it meant, it was as if they were just watching something in Japanese. It made no sense to them, but that was okay. Yeah, we, we worked with a couple of local agencies and they had sales guys who were kind of account guys and it was their, their job to keep the client happy. So they'd come back, they'd go for a meeting with a client and the client would say something like, yeah, we'd really like this WYSIWYG editor in, you know, in the CMS. Um, and of course the, the account guy would go, sure, we can handle that because it was their job to keep him happy without thinking about what implications it had for, you know, the designers or the developers or anything else. Like the bad project manager, not at Habicog, but I've worked with them, who doesn't understand what they're saying yes to 
when they tell the clients is, you know, I'd like to just one thing and can we make this change? Yeah, that should be easy. And what they don't know is that the database doesn't work that way. And they've just basically undone six months worth of work or promised to do something we don't know how to build. We don't have the information architecture in place to build what they just promised to. And they just promised it next week because to them it looked like a small change. Mark Bolton, our friend Mark Bolton, he mentioned briefly during this talk that he gave at that conference about the difference between gaining an account, as would happen in advertising, right, and winning a project like we tend to do. It tends to be, tends to be what we do on the web. We tend to work on projects rather than working on accounts. How do you work at Happy Card? Because I've, I've always been, a, I've always wanted to work on things for long periods of time. You know, I'd love to keep working on the same thing over a longer period so, you know, we can make it the best it can be. But most clients don't want to work that way. They just want to, you know, they want a price for the project and then they want to move on. How do, how do you work at Happy Cog? We generally do projects, but we get a lot of repeat business. Some of our clients like us a lot and, and so we'll do multiple projects, for, end up doing multiple projects for that client. But nobody has accounts in our field. Well, there are ad agencies that do web design work as part of a bigger parcel of work they do. You know, so the play, you go to them and they do your TV and they do your print and they do your, the funny hat that you wear and they do the badge. They do the leave behind the postcard, the ass scratching, <laughs> uh, they do everything. And, and as part of that, they do a website. Might even be okay. But, uh, but they don't specialize in the, in the web. But people who come to web specialists like us, it tends to be because wow, I might say it's not really working for me or we want to make these changes or it's time for a refresh. I think less and less people are coming for a refresh. Nowadays, people are coming with, you know, uh, a, they have a, some idea of what they want or what's not working. Usually, we, uh, regardless of what they want, we sit down with them and ask them a lot of questions up front and get to know a lot about them because and about their business and about their competitors' business and so on because... Uh, even if they have a really strong idea of what they want, it may not be what they really need. We want to make sure that we're, you know, before we commit, before they commit time and resources and before we do, that uh, we're actually going to have something that's useful to, to, the, to their customers and them and that there'll be metrics in place to measure that usefulness. That, again, is, you know, I know that gets, in, uh, metrics gets in the way of, the thing you were talking about earlier about just, I have this great freaking idea, let's just do the great idea. But I think you need both. You do need to be able to say, you do need a great idea, but you need to know what problem you're trying to solve with that idea first. And, uh, and you need to be able to measure and say, it was a great idea. And it's also very comforting to know that subscriptions are up by 20%. I need to talk more about this to Mark though at some point because I've never, I've never got to the bottom of how retainers work, and I've never worked on retainer. We you don't put do them in your mouth here. at night. <laughs> I think that's a different kind of thing. Talking about things that we're not supposed to do, right? What about firing people? Because I remember there was in the last season again, Don fires the guy, famously fires the guy from Jaguar, and I love this because he's called Herb. Do you get? Do people still get called Herb? The, no, I don't think so. If he fires the client. When I when I uh, when I worked for Sal DeVito, we had just done a campaign for VH1, and this campaign would have made my career. I wasn't the only one who worked on it. I had really great partners. There was a bunch of there were several teams working on it. 
and all under Sal's leadership. It wouldn't have. I mean, I I don't want it to make it sound like I was in charge of any of this. I was I was but a participant. Um, but it still put that in my book, win a few awards with that, and I would have I would have I probably still be in advertising. I wouldn't have moved on to the web. So it all worked out as it should have. But we'd done this campaign for VH1. It was really just edgy and funny and brilliant and appropriate and everything. Right for them, just the right attitude, like edgy but not as edgy as MTV. I mean, just like, you know, just just like right, 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 right. And the client, we're sitting on this, we just presented the work for the first time. And we presented one campaign. Right? We didn't do three campaigns. We presented one campaign, like, this is what you should do. And they loved it, and they bought it. They were like, this is fantastic. This is incredible. Um, could we just see it in a different font? <laughs> and my creative director said, no. And he said, this meeting is over, and he got up. And we all got up and left. And I was looking back, just like with my heart breaking. I was like, I got... I would have given it to them in Comic Sans if they wanted. If they were going to buy that campaign, I really wouldn't have cared. What You know what I mean? I, w- I would have certainly tried a different typeface. I, I thought that was a reasonable request, but he didn't. And that's the, uh, I guess that's the most extreme I've ever seen of firing a client. Uh, Sounds like something Mike Montero would do. I don't think Mike Montero would do that. No, I think he'd show them a different font. I fired clients... Uh, because we couldn't come to an agreement in the middle of a project. I've had two situations where the project's almost done and the client, in one situation, the project was almost done and the client apparently didn't understand what he'd agreed to. And we had contracts and everything, but, but the client was under the impression that we were going to be his, I don't know what, that, that he, that we were going to type all the content into it for him and write all the content for him and be on his staff for the rest of our lives uh, or something. And he hadn't understood what we meant with templates and a CMS, even though we had explained it. And even though he was very experienced, so he should have been familiar with these things, but it was bad communication. And if it's bad communication, then it's my fault. Don fired Jaguar because Herb wanted his guy to look over some of the work. He, he had this junior guy and he wanted to kind of, you know, I'm going to, here's, here's the guy that's going to be kind of like looking over some of your work. Um, which is pretty much like, um, when Mike, as Mike describes in his book, where, you know, the client starts to, you know, come back with their own comps. <laughs> in I had that too. I've had that too. Uh, and I fired that client as well. Um, and I tried to reach an accommodation with them. So the comp one, the situation there was that the decision maker, the real decision maker, was not involved on the project until later. That's deadly. Right. You've had that. So we had a, a designated decision maker, someone authorized by the client to run this project. And we got along with that person beautifully. And we sold them a really great idea. And they loved it. And we were, we were delivering templates. We were delivering templates. We're at that stage, and the owner suddenly gets involved and decides he doesn't like that at all, and he hired an illustrator to come up with a sketch and sent this sketch. And my client, who at this point is now fearful of losing his job, 
sends me the sketch without much explanation and said, well, here's from the owner. And I said, well, what is this? And he said, well, it's a sketch. I said, no, I, I can see that, but uh, <laughs> it's a nice sketch. But what is it for? And What does it have to do what with does it have the, And it was a, a photorealistic, they wanted like a, a photorealistic table. It was very 1990s uh, with like a glove, a bloody glove on the table and a notebook and a spilled bottle of ink. And each of those things would be nav, right? And... Uh, and I said, I really, I said, you know, there are people who, there are illustrate, there are there are companies where they have an illustrator and they can take your concept and make a website from it. And had you approached us and said that was the job, we would have said, gosh, that's not our specialty. But you know, have a great life and maybe recommended somebody. But uh, but you came to us because we are designers and create solutions. And we understood your problem and made a solution. And now you're saying. You just want this, and we don't get that. And, and uh, the guy pushed back real hard, and we said, okay, here's what we can do. And we uh, we came to some kind of accommodation with that, even though at that point we really should have fired him. And then he said, this was like five, this was maybe six, seven years ago, way before responsive design. He said, why isn't it liquid? And we said, wait a minute, why isn't the photorealistic table with the bloody glove liquid? <laughs> he said, yes, isn't that the standard for the industry? I thought you guys are the standards people. I said, I said there was never in any of our discussions a discussion about anything like that. If you'd wanted that, we certainly could have implemented it, but we would have then said, you can't have a photorealistic table that's liquid. Doesn't make sense. Yeah. Reality don't work that way. So uh we stopped and uh he was in England too, so it was hard because uh we'd never really had a face to face with that guy either. So it was just a sad We've only ever fired two clients in sixteen years. I did once show one guy the door. This is quite this is like one of my stories. Do you ever um do you ever see the T V show Murder One? No. It was brilliant. Look it up. I'm sure you can get it on Netflix or iTunes or something, but it was, it was a big courtroom thing. I'm not going to give anything else away, but it was about this, um, about a murder trial and it focused on the defendant and on his defense lawyers. And the boss of this law firm was uh, played by Daniel Benzali, big kind of bald headed guy. Um, and the character, I forget the name of the character now that he played, had this habit where people would come into his office for a meeting and they'd sit there and they'd talk. And when he was ready, when he, when he knew the meeting was finished and he wanted them to go without saying a word, he would get up from behind his desk, walk over to his closed office door and open it. And then the person he was talking to would know that, you know, it was their time to leave. And it was all very cordial and it was all very unsaid, but he was, he was in control. Um, wow. And I, and it's a really powerful stuff. And I once had a client. <laughs> it's actually, it wasn't a real client. It was a prospective client. We hadn't quite got that far. I don't know whether we were still negotiating, but I think the guy started to, was starting to take liberties. Um, and I actually did that thing. I stood up from behind my desk and I walked to the front door of our office, which is the same thing as the front door of my office and opened the door. And the guy just stood up from his chair and walked out and I never saw him again. <laughs> wow. Are you still happy about it? 
Yeah, I am still happy about it because I think a degree of kind of confidence and self-respect never goes never goes amiss, right? You're right. A couple more things I just want to briefly talk to you about before we just talk about what's going to happen in season seven because I'm really, really interested in what you think they're going to do with the storyline as we get towards the, the final season. But there's, there's something that you've done something a lot more than I have over the years, and that's take people on and work with them, young people, up-and-coming people, work with them and watch them grow um, and then watch them go off and do their own thing. I mean, you know, you, you could say that Peggy's that character. You know, Peggy's that person that Don helps succeed and then, you know, she goes off to leave and join CGC. Except it crushes him that she goes off to leave. He can't handle it. No, because he says that he used to see her as an extension of himself and then he realizes that. that she's not. She and can't that's, do that. And, and that's, that's an interesting thing. So you've done this. I can think of several people who you have mentored over the years that have gone on to do great things, right? So great things. I mean, how, how, how do you feel when, when they leave and they go off and do something without you? Thrilled. The only time it was ever weird was one time five people who had worked for me or with me in some capacity got together to make something and didn't even ask me what I thought of it. And I, that was a little blow to my ego, but it, it passed. I was like, oh, well. And, and then I was like, well, maybe because they don't need me, and that's great. Or maybe because I'm daddy, and, you know, when you, when you, when you leave, we leave to go to college, you don't really call dad to ask what kind of beer you should have at the party. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I had a little bit of a um, an ego problem with that for a second, uh, but it passed, and I was really happy for them. Generally... Wow, I wish I hadn't said that other part because it's so, well, I'm just being honest. But usually, mm. usually just super happy because it's time. A couple people I've been so close to that it kind of broke my heart. And I've even had uh, one or two where I said, hey, I offered them a lot to stay, like like everything I could think of. And they still had to go. And then it was like, well, then they have to go. And that's cool. And it's great. They do great stuff in the world. And they would have done it anyway. It's not because of me. Have you ever thought about going inside somewhere, working somewhere for a while, and building a team? The thoughts crossed my mind over the years. There's a, well, there's a few places that I would like to experience. Honestly, the the thing that if if you were to like say, okay, you've got you, you've got to quit the business tomorrow and go and work for someone, you know, who is it going to be? My first choice would be I would love dearly to work with Aaron Walter at Mailchimp. I would learn mm. so much from him. I mean, he's one of my favorite people in the whole world. Yeah. And I would learn an enormous amount from him. That that would be where I would go. Yeah, I get that. And he is a great guy. And that whole team is amazing. I think, though, that I'm probably <laughs> I'm probably unemployable at this stage. Me though. too. I don't feel sad about. No, I feel so happy to have uh, made a place for myself because I was not a very good employee. I was never happy anywhere I worked. I was the kind of employee who should get fired, and I did get fired a lot. I got fired a lot. Not for anything cool like insubordination. And I, I didn't get fired for like getting drunk and proposing to the secretary at four in the morning. On a, I mean, I, it's crazy, crazy shit that I did that I did not get fired for. But I got fired for, uh, for what was in my soul. The, the darkness that was in my soul because I was unhappy at these places because I didn't like the way they were run and I didn't like the creative product we were putting out and I was amazingly vocal about that 
I would get increasingly unhappy the longer I was at somewhere. Um, and then I'd be looking for the, for the next thing. Yeah. And I, I realized that actually, and it took a long, long time for me to figure this one out. I realized that the problem wasn't somebody else. I shouldn't keep blaming other people for shit that went wrong. Um, the problem was always with me. It was like that whole saying, you know, you're, you, you still take your, well, this is from Total Recall. You know, what's, what's the thing that you always came with you on holiday? It's yourself. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, the, uh, it is not, it is our star. It is our, in our, not in our stars, but in ourselves, dear Brutus, uh, Shakespeare, wherever you go, there you are. You see, that's the difference between you and me. You said you quote Shakespeare and I quote Total Recall. Wow. I, that's very succinct. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't know. We never got to talk about Planet of the Apes. We'll have to do that another time. We're not. Oh, no. We're not. Not today. Not today, because otherwise we're going to be here all evening. Let's, let's, talk about, let's talk about season seven. Let's talk about what's going to come up. I have no idea how they're going to write themselves out of the corner they've written themselves into. I mean, I can imagine Don starting a new agency in New York, maybe, or in California, maybe. He just sent his wife to California, right? So will he follow her? Or was he trying to get rid of her, too? It seemed like he was trying to cut himself adrift from everything. His kids are still in the New York area. So if he goes to California, he'd be seeing them even less. And that would be hard. Then again, even when he was married, it didn't seem like he really understood. He seemed desperately needy toward his young wife, but he didn't seem like they actually had a partnership or like he understood her. He spent a lot of time lying to her, so I don't know. Let's think about the business thing for a minute, right? Because they they didn't give him... He asked for a return date. They didn't give him one. They said, we can't give you that. Which, it kind of left it open as if he could return, but then he goes and meets, um, is it Duck Phillips in the elevator with like what looks like his replacement? Yes. So he's on his way down and Duck's on his way up, Duck, right? So Of all people... I know. Oh, that's harsh. That's really painful. So, which means that even though the partners may have left the door open or it's kind of unsaid, right? He can't go back. He's okay. So first of he all, he cannot go back. He's going to compete with his agency. I think he's going to stay in New York and fight with, fight to get projects and to get clients away from them, fight to get clients that they are fighting for. I think he will try to get Peggy and, oh my God, who is the wonderful, I don't even. She's a vice president now, but she started as a, as the head of the secretarial pool. Uh, Joan. Joan. I can see him trying to recruit Joan because I thought they always had a. Uh, they ha- they not only had a relationship, like not a physical relationship, but a, a mental emotional relationship. I thought they were the only two people that really understood and respected each other. And they have a real respect for yeah. each other, definitely. Yeah, and the fact that he. Even though he's been with everybody else, the fact that he's never in a drunken moment come on to Joan, it's like she respects that. I think, I mean, what happened, there's this really weird thing. It was like a classic Don Draper move, right? Where to, in order to get Chevy, they, they, he comes up with the crazy idea of merging with CGC, which you know is not going to work out in the long term because, you know, he doesn't compete well with people. He doesn't work well with people. He can't work with Ted Shaw. Right. So from that moment, he gets more and more and more disinterested in his work. I mean, he's hardly there. He's playing those weird kind of power games with Sylvia Rosen downstairs. Right. Sylvia Rosen. Yes. Good Jewish name. Oh, oh, um, the doctor's wife. Yeah. Who plays her? Uh, don't know. 
unrecognizable. You do know her from uh, Scooby-Doo and from Freaks and Geeks. Not seen either of those. And she has a uh, minor role in the season of New Girl. Okay, not seen that. But he's he's completely disinterested in work. He's completely disinterested in the agency. Uninterested. Uninterested. Yeah, he's missing meetings. He's, you know, he's not doing great work, right? So it's almost like he's left already. And it's almost as if... The, the agency, Sterling Cooper and Partners, it's not him anymore. It's not he, he didn't even, for a guy that's supposed to have a big ego, he didn't even fight the fact that his name's not on the door anymore. It's Sterling Cooper and Partners. He didn't even fight that because he doesn't even work there anymore. He'd, he'd left long before they fired him. You're right. So I think that he's either going to, he's going to do one of two things. He's either going to go to California, but then that's weird because. What, who's he's, he's, he's not going to be starting anything there. You know, he's not going to have clients there. They think that admin come from the moon in LA at that point. Maybe he'll switch to guys. <laughs> so I think that you might be right. I think that what matters most to him is his children at this stage. His children who he's mostly ignored, but I think he, he cares about him. It's also a terrible. He had a real connection with both of them in different ways. I He's think, a much better six. father than he had. He had no father. I think it's really, I think the whole, the whole sham of a family was very important to him because he had no family. It was so important to him to have this, uh, his original wife. I mean, the picture that they created of a perfect suburban domestic happiness was really important to him. And I think it killed him to lose that. I think that he had, he got a connection with Sally towards the end. I mean, you know, the way that they're looking at each other when they're standing outside the old whorehouse, I think meant something. Yes. And he took Robbie to see planet of the apes, which had me in hysterics. It was, it was just crying. I, I just Weeping. Like jumped up. <laughs> Whoa, there we go. Dr. Zayas. I think that he's probably going to end up, I don't know where he's going to end up work-wise, but I don't think he's going to go to California. I don't think it would be, it would be very odd all of a sudden to take him to California. It be like, you know, it's not the show. The tone of no, the show is New York with California no. as this excursion. So I think that that's, that's possibly where we're going to go. How on earth or whether or not they resolve the, the false identity thing. I, I don't mean, I, I, I you think I, they're ever going to resolve got... that. You think that that comes at the series end? He comes in and, like, turns himself in. It makes me wonder, if they don't resolve it, it makes me wonder why they wrote it in in the first place, because I don't think it necessarily... Well, it, it kind of does add to the character in a way. He's always looking to escape himself. This is, this is Don's personality. He's looking to escape himself, and he did that in Korea. Um, so whether or not that is it, there's no more to that. It's not going to be some dramatic ending. I don't know. Or it will. I always thought that that was the weakest aspect of the whole series. It was like there was a gun on the wall and nobody was firing it. And every once in a while, someone would make a comment about the gun on the wall. But year after year, and I don't know, the only, there was a woman who found out about him, that the uh, art director, well, I think she was, an Italian woman with blonde hair. No, she was, a, she was actually the researcher, Faye Miller. Right, that's right. I thought she was great, and I thought that was his chance at redemption. He, that was a grown-up lady who actually knew the most scandalous, horrible thing about him and loved him anyway and said, I'll stand by you. Let's face this together. 
which is why he which ran, he ran away, away and married his secretary 20 years younger than him. He is always looking to escape the, his reality. He doesn't want and a Faye, partner who knows him. No, Faye, Faye represented represented his reality, and he didn't want to do that. And just as when you thought that he was going to kind of accept who he was with that kind of return to California and introducing the kids to his niece and all that kind of stuff, all of a sudden, though, he's, he, you know, he's gone and married Megan, and he's just escaping again. I actually read, um, I, was, I was reading up on this the other day, because people love to sort of psychoanalyze Don, right? And I've actually read, this is, sounds a bit sad, I should get out more, but I've read articles from people that are psychologists and psychiatrists, and they try to analyze him, and none of it makes sense. I'll, I'll send you a link in a minute, I'll put it in the show notes, but I found one recently on Esquire, and they said that, Don suffers from a narcissistic personality disorder. This was some psychologist, right? Right. Narcissistic personality disorder. Because he's, and it says here, he's, he's concerned with power and vanity and image and his hedonistic need for lots of sex and alcohol, right? It feeds his insatiable ego. I'm thinking when I'm reading that, I'm thinking, you know, you might be a clever psychologist, but you know absolutely nothing about Don Draper. Why? Because that's not him at all. That's, that's just the crust. That's just the surface. That's like the symptom of Don. It's not the real Don. There was another one I read. Where is this? Yeah. Grandiose lack of empathy and obsession with one's own power. I said, that's not Don. I don't think any of these people have actually watched Mad Men. Oh, I think they have. I've got my own pet theory, which I think we've talked about before. What's your pet theory? I think he has what's called depersonalization disorder. Mm. Which I'll put a link in the show notes, but I found something on Wikipedia about it. And basically, and I think this, I think this explains absolutely everything about Don's behavior over the last six seasons so far, right? Because depersonalization disorder is the, the symptom includes people feeling disconnected from their own body or their own emotions. They feel detached from their own thoughts. They live in like a dreamlike state. And it's caused by childhood abuse. And it's caused by childhood abuse and some kind of trauma early on where basically people go inside themselves and they, they can, they make these constructs where things, things don't touch them. Things that are happening Protecting on the yourself. outside world yes. don't touch them. In fact, Don actually said, and man, he says things that make the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Sometimes. He said the thing about sex not meaning anything to him. He did. Exactly. Which was so weird because from the outside, it looks like it means a great deal to him. Which is why the whole thing about his kind of hedonism and, you know, conquests and stuff like that, that's actually really missing the point. What Don wants is intimacy. But he can never way. have it. But he can never have it. And he said in, there was an episode called The Mountain King, and he said, I've been watching my life. It's right there. I keep scratching at it, trying to get into it, but I can't. Yeah. And that, that is a classic description of depersonalization. And all the things that he does, whether it's the, the excessive drinking or the affairs or anything else, it's all trying to kind of break down that barrier. He's trying to do things that have become more and more and more extreme just so that he can feel something touch him. That's Don. That's what I don't think people get. Well, they're, they're looking at the surface. But he's obviously, obviously the most isolated person in the world. And the acting is superb. And, and especially when you realize that's not him at all. I mean, I, I don't know if you've seen John Hamm in anything else. No, I haven't. Oh, my God. He does uh, mostly comedy. Uh, he was in, uh, let's see, the, um, 
Well, he he was in uh, he was one of the love interests of Liz Lemon in Thirty Rock. He's in uh, Bridesmaids. He's in uh, he's in a ton of stuff. Look, go to IMDb, you'll see. But but he has this sort of or he plays completely believably this uh, goofy personality. He doesn't even look like the same actor. Doesn't even look like the same person when he's doing it. So he's really incredible. I have no idea what he's really like, of course, because. Uh, I don't read celebrity interviews, and I don't think he gives any. So, no, I th- I'm really looking forward to what's going to happen. It's next Sunday, I think it airs. I don't know whether they're doing, like, a, a two-hour first episode, like they did last time. But it's kind of going to annoy me that they're going to spread it over two years, like they did with Breaking Bad. That's going to really get my goat. AMC are based in New York, I think, so you should just go around there and, and explain I met one of the uh, web folks. At an event apart Atlanta. Yeah, you met him too. Yeah. No, and in fact, they sent me, it was really lovely, they sent me for Christmas a, uh, a Mad Men Fuzzy Felts game, which was, uh, which was really sweet of them. <coughs> Listen, I think we need to go before you, uh, you, you, you fall into a, into a stupor. I have to take something for the coffin and go pick up my kid from school. It's been wonderful, and I could certainly do this all day. Let's talk again soon. Thank you so much. So people can follow you, Jeffrey, on Twitter. You are, of course, at Zeldman or me at Malarkey. To ask questions or suggest topics, you can message this show on Twitter at UnfinishedBZ or you can email me, he has at unfinished.bz. Thanks again to our sponsors this week. They were the Business of Web Design Conference and Perch. You can support the show by supporting them. Cheers, mate. Cheers.